Hi there. I'm Anne-Marie McQueen, editor of livehealthy.ae, and this is the livehealthy.ae podcast. Each week, we will interview leaders in the UAE's health and wellness community, and we'll explore topics you read about in our online magazine, the only one of its kind for men and women. And now it's time to meet this week's guest. So today on the Live Healthy podcast, we have Dr. Stephen Grawmeyer, Chair of the Oncology Unit, Professor of Surgery and Director of Breast Cancer Surgery at Cleveland Clinic Abu Dhabi. Welcome, Dr. Grawmeyer. Thank you for having me. I first came across you last year when I went to a breakfast at um, Body Tree Studios and you spoke to a group of women and made every, you know, presented tons of research and I felt I felt really good when I was listening to you speak there because you, you sort of, you know, you said presented all this research. So much of it seemed in our hands, like as much of a third of, of the possibilities of us getting breast cancer. Um, is that a message you're trying to spread to people that it's in Absolutely. Your Thank you for that. Uh, you know, this is October and it's Breast Cancer Awareness Month. I mean, breast cancer is important every month, but particularly in the month of October because uh, it's a time where we really focus on education and, and, and encouraging people to be compliant with the screening recommendations, which we think can be a very important part of healthy living. For women. And can you just go through the screening recommendations now? I'm Canadian. I pay attention to, I get so confused, you know, what it is I'm supposed to be doing right now. Right. Well, uh, for average risk women, that is women who do not have a strong family history or other um, high risk features for developing breast cancer. We recommend that screening begin at age 40, and uh, it should be done every one or two years after that. And the frequency with which one does it really should be a discussion between the patient and her doctor. Uh, again, taking into account uh, expectations, personal history, and family history, uh, so that patients can make the most informed decisions about what would be best for them. And you spoke with a colleague last year, and she was talking about continuity of care, which I think is something here in the UAE and for expatriates is a little bit of an issue. How important do you think that is to have the same doctor? Yeah, it's extremely important. And and there's several issues related to that. One is medicine has become very uh, subspecialized. So particularly in areas uh, like breast cancer, there are physicians such as we have at Cleveland Clinic Abu Dhabi who have specialty training in breast cancer. And uh, not just one aspect of breast cancer, we'll have at a a hospital such as ours, we'll have surgeons, for instance, who are specialists in breast cancer surgery. We have medical doctors who are specialists in breast cancer, medical treatment of breast cancer. And same is true of radiologists. We have radiologists who've done specialty training in imaging breasts. So having this team together uh, is actually critically important, we think, so we can get the diagnosis correct and then offer patients the the best hope for uh, a good outcome. And and the other point of that is that, um, you know, uh, when people jump around from one hospital to another, I mean, they may have images at one hospital or one clinic and then go to another clinic. Well, it's very helpful for doctors um, to compare uh, imaging to prior imaging. And that's often how we determine whether a patient's having a problem or not. So having it done properly and in a consistent way and read by the same group of people is very important, we think. 
what um what is there anything in the last year that you're really excited about that's that's come out? I'm sure there's lots, but there's so many new things. Uh, you know, the thing that really has me most excited is uh, is this uh, I think growing body of evidence which really is starting to support scientifically a relationship between lifestyle and uh, two things: one, breast cancer risk, and two. Uh, outcomes for patients if they do develop breast cancer. So I I think in the last six months, we've seen a number of papers in very important journals looking at these issues. These are not easy studies to do, but the preponderance of evidence continues to suggest that these things are very important and that that one can reduce uh, their risk of getting breast cancer by uh, things like a low-fat diet, uh, weight management, exercise, alcohol in moderation, things like that can be very important to, to modulate risk. So that, that's a very exciting development that we continue to learn more about and something we really emphasize to our patients as well. And there's a study, we're putting it up on Live Healthy this week for out of Cleveland Clinic in the US about the importance of exercise and that exercise during, right. during treatment um, and after and how it can mitigate your risk and help you recover. How, can you sort of explain exercise? Absolutely. Yeah, I think you know there, there continues also to be evidence about the importance of exercise and in uh, reducing fatigue, particularly for those patients who require chemotherapy as part of their treatment. We, we continue to learn that exercise uh, before, during, and after can reduce a lot of the fatigue that's associated with uh, the administration of chemotherapy. And so it just adds to the list of reasons why we really focus on trying to keep our patients active. Now, when I hear you say low-fat diet, we write a ton here on Live Healthy about good fat and cardi- cardiovascular that. So that part is very confusing because I hear you say that and then I just had, you know, my avocado and uh, <laughs> so right. that sort of, how do those two jive? Yeah, we, we really focus on something called the Mediterranean diet, uh, which is uh, low in red meat and uh, uh, high in fish, fish oils, those kind of things. And uh, so I think we're also learning, as you point out, there are healthy fats and uh, they're bad fats. So the fat one gets when he or she eats French fries is probably we know is not good for one, but there are other types of fats that come from uh, natural foods like avocados uh, that we think can be part of a healthy diet. So again, I think this is something that, uh, you know, following that Mediterranean diet is something that, that we uh, we really espouse and, and we think is important and can do a lot to improve not only uh, reduction in breast cancer risk, but also improve one's heart health as well. And, you know, in the UAE, we have a lot of fast food here. We have a lot of people eating a lot of sugar and a lot of processed food. How does that, how does that play into the risk? And, your, yeah, how does that play into the risk? Yeah, I mean, those, those types of fast foods generally um, are higher in, in fats and uh, don't have a lot of high-value calories. And so uh, while they may be convenient, uh, in the short and long term, they're really not good for one's health, like either... Uh, in terms of mitigating cancer risk or reducing one's risk from other health problems, such as hypertension, cardiovascular risk, and things like that. So it's best to be in an environment where one can prepare their own food, have control over that, uh, and with a real reliance on fresh, healthy foods, uh, vegetables, fruits, things like that. Okay. Uh, what about supplements? Because last year you talked about some research in the and the importance of cruciferous vegetables. You know, you're sort of like Brussels sprouts and broccoli and I've heard a lot in the last year about sulforaphane, which is a supplement, and people are sort of touting that it's backed by research. What, what about what about supplements? How do you how do you feel about them? 
Yeah, I, I uh, we get this question all the time, and and I'm I'm uh, in general in favor of supplements such as the ones you mentioned. Uh, we do stress that it's important that uh, as patients embark on those supplements, particularly when they're in the acute phase of treatment, that they discuss that openly with the doctors who are taking care of them. Because while they have benefit, uh, we want to make sure they don't interfere with established treatments or cause complications from established treatments. For instance, we patients having surgery, we wouldn't want them on any natural products that might increase their risk of bleeding. So at that time during surgery, we would like them to have a reduction in, in those types of things. So these are things that we try to personalize and we discuss with patients, you know, particularly those who are on active treatment. But uh, I think supplements like that can be uh, certainly part of a overall plan to uh, improve one's wellness. Are there any supplements you hear about that you just shake your head and think, I don't know why anyone would take that? <laughs> no, I, we, we remain pretty open-minded about these things. Uh, you know, I, I think the thing that frustrates us the most is when patients have a curable problem by modern approaches, and nobody wants to take chemotherapy, nobody wants to take radiation therapy. But uh, we do know that in many situations, if we follow established treatment guidelines, that patients can have a very good long-term outcome, and our ability to cure breast cancer has never been better. And uh, what frustrates us the most is when we see patients uh, entirely shun traditional treatments in favor of maybe alternative treatments or natural treatments. And almost uniformly, patients who do that come back and still need our help. So we like, again, this should be a partnership about having patients work with doctors, particularly during that acute phase of treatment, so that we can accomplish all of the goals uh, that we set out for patients and uh, give them the best chance for doing well long-term. Is that happening more? People people saying, no, I want to go the natural route. I mean, because that, that information is seems to us to be growing. Is it happening crazy right. more? Well, we do see that um, certainly from time to time, um, and certainly in my practice in the in Abu Dhabi, we have seen that. It's not the majority of patients, but we do see it from time to time. I think it's been pretty consistent over my twenty years of practice uh, with you know different people uh, in the United States also pursuing similar strategies. Um, last year, you were talking about a three D mammogram machine and the excitement over that. Did you guys end up getting that? Yes, we do, and that's called uh, tomosynthesis. And uh, it, it is a, a newer technology that allows radiologists to see uh, multiple aspects of the breast, all with one image. It's more like a movie of the breast. And I think the primary advantage of tomosynthesis is that it overcomes one of the uh, real traditional challenges with mammography, which is density. Density refers to how white the breast tissue appears on the mammogram. Well, the problem is that with a traditional mammogram, even in tunnel synthesis, cancers also most of the time appear white. And so if you have a two-dimensional mammogram, it can be very difficult for the radiologist to see a cancer hiding within dense tissue. But with a 3D mammogram, the radiologist is able to see a particular area of concern from multiple angles. And often they can see a cancer, which on a 2D mammogram, they wouldn't be able to see. So we think the greatest value of 3D mammography is in younger patients who characteristically have more dense breast tissue and uh, patients uh, who have dense breast tissue at any age. The other benefit of a 3D mammogram is that it um, will have been shown to reduce something called the callback rate. That is, the number of times a woman is asked to return after a 2D mammogram to have additional views. Well, those are really much less commonly needed 
and patients having a 3D mammogram. So it's something we're very excited about, and our program continues to grow, and we're very excited to be able to offer that to our patients. As one of those women who had the density, it, I've seen in my lifetime a change, you know, since I've been having mammograms. In the beginning, it was like, oh, you just have dense breaths, you have to come back. And then when I heard you say that, I thought, oh, it was interesting. It was just like what had just been a thing that you have had now become right. a bit of a risk factor. And um, right. so if you're not able to get to the 3D machine, you know, and, and you're always called back for the ultrasounds. In fact, I just go somewhere where I get both of them now because it happens. What's your sort of advice? I think you might have the only one in the city, the 3D. Right. It's, uh, you know, the thing is that it's, it's better to do a conventional mammogram than no mammogram at all. Uh, it's certainly not accessible to everyone, um, but if it is, then it's worth considering. Uh, but if not, certainly uh, I would proceed with a high-quality 2D mammogram and, and take it from there. It's something that we've used for years and still it has uh, great efficacy in uh, identifying breast cancer before it otherwise would be detectable. So I wouldn't let that pe stop people from uh, doing their screening. Now, you see a lot of women who are going through this. Um, do you actually deliver the diagnosis yourself? Yes, we do in, in many cases uh, because the most common way breast cancer presents in 2020 is with the patient feeling a new lump or mass in the breast. And uh, that should, uh, that finding or any other concern that's new in the breast, like skin changes, discharge, things like that, should prompt one to seek uh, medical attention, preferably in a center with expertise in managing these kind of problems. When one goes to a place such as the Breast Health Center at Cleveland Clinic Abu Dhabi, the take a detailed family history and personal history about the details of what patients are concerned about. And then uh, following a physical exam, then we typically will do imaging. And uh, in some cases, the imaging requires uh, patients to undergo a needle biopsy, which is something I would like just, just to mention briefly. A needle biopsy, uh, we do hear a lot of questions about that. And, and a lot of patients have concerns over the fact that a needle biopsy, if it's, if it's a cancer solution, might spread cancer. And in fact, that's actually not true, and this is something that's been studied extensively over the last 30 years. And we now know that needle biopsy is a very safe and accurate way, uh, which avoids surgery for most patients, uh, for us to make a diagnosis. And, and uh, you know, breast cancer treatment anymore doesn't always begin with surgery. So for us to get all the information about a particular problem and allow us to formulate a comprehensive treatment strategy is invaluable and can really limit the number of times patients actually need surgery, which is an important goal. Nobody wants to have surgery at all, much less more than once if they need it. So it's a very important test. And when patients have a needle biopsy, it usually takes maybe two or three days, working days, for us to get the report back. And yes, we've discussed it with the patient, and then we'll communicate those findings to the patient and then uh, get them in contact with other team members who we need uh, to help formulate a final treatment plan for. I said last year when I wrote about you that if I had to get a diagnosis, I would definitely want it to come from you because you're so calm. <laughs> you're very kind. Thank you. Is there anything that you say to, when you deliver it? Is, do you have any sort of calming words or how do you do that? Well, I, you know, the thing is uh, a lot of patients have a sense uh, before all this starts, uh, maybe something's not right. Um, we try before the biopsy to give uh, people hope in that even if there is a problem that we'll be there to support them. And then we have a great team around us, and we have the best diagnostic and treatment modalities that exist. I also believe that knowledge is power, so we really try to empower patients with, with uh, an appropriate amount of knowledge. Different people want knowledge or information at a different rate, not to overwhelm them, but to provide a supporting environment 
and engage patients in the uh, treatment decisions because breast cancer is not just treated one way. And uh, we have a great nursing staff that is, supports us and uh, helps a lot with uh, a lot of the issues and, and social workers and, and, and a full team that can help uh, address many of the challenges that all of a sudden people face when they're diagnosed with breast cancer. Like, for instance, what do I tell my children now that I've been diagnosed with breast cancer? How do I tell my colleagues at work? Am I going to miss work? Am I going to be able to work? All these sorts of things. Is it going to hurt? So there's a lot of concerns that people have, and we try, having identified them ahead of time, try to, to uh, bring them to the forefront so people don't feel silly or stupid by asking about those things, and they're very common things that people go through. I have a friend who's very into, um, you know, complementary and alternative therapies and very suspicious of mainstream medicine. So she, she doesn't get mammograms. And, um, and I am, a, I'm in the middle, you know, my mom was a nurse and I, but I, I like these things, but is there a risk? Should I be worried if I'm getting a mammogram every year? What, what are the possible things that I would be worried about? Well, we don't, we don't, uh, you know, in the United States, uh, many of us uh, still have advocated for mammography every year. Um, there's no evidence that the low-dose uh, x-ray used to for mammography really has any long-term uh, harm to patients. So, but I think, I think you know, part of the reason that uh, many national guidelines and societies, international bodies, have recommended considering going to every other year is, is to reduce the potential uh, radiation exposure, also reduce what's called the harms of imaging, which, you know, uh, certain people consider the need to come back for a second image of harm or the need to have a biopsy for what turns out to be a benign lesion to be a harm. Other people don't. They, they feel like that uh, if, if these are things that are necessary to exclude an early answer, which will allow us to treat it very easily, then uh, you know, that's, that's advantageous and worth doing. So there, there's some controversy. And uh, I think the main thing is that, uh, that it, just in our opinion, that it's done on a regular basis, be it every year or every other year. And then also, I think we're learning a lot more about risk stratification. So, you know, it's particularly important if a patient, for instance, has a family history of a mother and two sisters and an aunt who all had breast cancer. That's somebody who should be in a very high-risk screening program, such as the one we offer. Others uh, may have a you know, healthy lifestyle and, and may elect to do screening less frequently. So but particularly in patients who identify as very high risk, it's really important. You are dealing with a real cross-section in Abu Dhabi, you know, and I'm wondering um, in, when you, in your career in the U.S. compared to here, what are the biggest differences you notice in cases? Do you see advanced cases? I don't know. Yeah, yeah we're seeing, uh, you know, one of the observations we've made, and, and uh, we'll report this at some point in the scientific literature, is we're seeing, it seems, a preponderance of younger women with breast cancer than we saw in the United States. And there's been a lot of discussion about that. One explanation is that it may be a slightly different disease in this part of the world than we saw in the United States. Another explanation could be that we are dealing with, in general, a younger population in the UAE compared to many Western populations. So that's something we haven't entirely sorted out. Uh, we seem to be seeing younger women uh, who have more advanced disease at the time they present to us. Uh, so it has raised you know, interest in some discussion about whether we should be considering other strategies for screening, maybe even in younger women. Uh, but I think before we would take that step, we certainly need to put together all the available data, really characterize and understand the disease in the UAE before we embarked on re making the recommendations such as that. But I, I think at the end of the day, breast health awareness is critical and that uh, the message should be that women of any age, when they notice a change, 
should seek the attention of experts who know about this because even 24-year-old women, we've seen breast cancer. Now, most 24-year-old women don't have breast cancer. They have a benign condition, but it would be wrong to assume that it's a benign condition until it's been properly evaluated. In many cases, for a 24-year-old, it would be a simple ultrasound, which is completely harmless. So it's, it's empowering people to take control and to ask questions and to feel confident that they're doing the right thing by seeking help. Because there's no doubt that when we diagnose breast cancer at earlier stages, the outcomes are much better, and it's much less likely that people will need more aggressive treatments like chemotherapy. And when you say change, just tell me what you mean. Like what? Any, any kind of change? Yeah. Well, not any kind of change. I mean, what we encourage people to do is, to, is a concept called uh, breast health awareness. So it's the idea that people should know their body. Now, it's not a, in the old days, we would recommend routine self-exam. We, it was yeah. self-exam. So where that's not. Well, I mean, I think a lot of experts now have, uh, based on, on scientific evidence, have decided that, that it's not appropriate to recommend that for everyone. Because there are women that we see who have a baseline irregular uh, texture of the breast tissue. And they're not confident in doing an exam. And in some cases, this will lead to a patient going in once a month to get something checked by a doctor because they're constantly feeling something. So. What I like to recommend it is for patients who rec recognize a change that's different from what they're used to. And it's just a question of being aware. So if a patient develops a new bump or mass in the breast that wasn't there before and doesn't go away after a short time, you know, there are lumps and masses that come with the menstrual cycle, but ones that come and don't go away need to be checked out. And uh, everything that one feels in the breast is not a cyst or fibroadenoma, it can be something else. And so that's where we need to, you know, leverage, you know, modern imaging and, and our expertise to really sort that out. Uh, other things that we could concern about are new discharge, particularly um, when it's new, uh, when it's clear or bloody, it's particularly concerning. Um, and then skin changes can also be a sign. So if one develops skin redness, uh, maybe a tendency to assume it's always an infection. It's not always. Many times it is. But again, this is something that should be uh, investigated by a group of people who have experience with this. And what is a short time? Because as someone who covers like all health, I have I obviously have become kind of a hypochondriac. I think I have everything. So I, whenever something happens, I say, if it's here in 10 days, I'll do something about it. Well, what is it? Yeah. You know, what's the right amount of well, time? Well, I, you know, I think I think particularly for for women, you know, uh, you know, if if their breast changes during the menstrual cycle and they notice a change during the menstrual cycle and then it persists when it normally goes away, that would be time to have it checked out. If you're someone who never has a change in the breast during the menstrual cycle and all of a sudden, you know, one day you're in the shower and you feel something, a new spot or a lump in the breast, there's no harm in having it checked. I mean, it's actually empowering to have it checked just so we can reassure people that there's nothing to do so it's it's uh there's no like definite cutoff four or five days or two weeks but uh waiting three or four months is not really a great idea you know i think within the month it should be checked out a lot of women who recover from breast cancer who i've interviewed they'll or, or read about they'll say i changed my whole life i changed everything i realized you know i wasn't happy doing this and my life had been so stressful and it's not i just wonder how much of a connection is there between stress, chronic stress and anxiety and that and and breast cancer? Because uh, it's not like they got it because they were stressed. It's not like anyone did it to get it. But you right. do hear a lot of women say, I, I overhauled my whole life. Right. I, I, I think it, you know, it 
This sort of uh, goes back to part of the conversation we had earlier about lifestyle modification and risk. And I think there's a growing uh, scientific evidence that uh, factors that we both can and can't control in our life, for instance, diet, uh, cigarette smoking, alcohol consumption, things like this uh, that we have direct control over can have an impact on our genes uh, and, and cause them to function ab abnormally um, and may predispose one to a higher risk for developing breast cancer. And, and I think there's no question that the, there's a biology to stress. When one is stressed, there's more steroids in the body. There's more inflammation in the body. We have to believe that these things have an impact also on the epigenome or these things have an impact indirectly on our genetics, which may predispose us to breast cancer. So I think it all is part of, uh, part of a healthy lifestyle. And, and I expect in the years to come, we're going to find more and more scientific evidence to actually back this up. And as I mentioned before, it's an exciting year because we've seen a lot of scientific work published, particularly in this room. Well, thank you so much. It's, so, it's such a pleasure to talk to you. And uh, thanks for the work you do. Thanks for coming on. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for the opportunity. Thank you so much. That's it for this week. If you liked the podcast, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review. We'll see you next time on the livehealthy.ae podcast.